0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse study of Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Good morning to all of you. I'm so glad to see you. I have to thank Josiah who did a, a very good job of babysitting me this week. Uh, Friday, we were 16 and a half hours in the car together. Oh dear. And I don't care who you are, after 16 and a half hours, you're a little tired of the other person. <laughs> and uh, so by the time I dropped him off at, what was it, 1.30 in the morning? Something like, that. Something like that. he just couldn't get out of the car quick enough. He it was like, I love you, Pastor Jim. Goodbye. And so we had a very good time in Long Island, very good time in New York. And I just want to say this for Josiah's sake wait. Only Josiah would get that. We went out walking every single day, and uh, every street corner, you have to push a button to cross the street because there's so much traffic. And then it speaks to you. And the first thing it says is, in the most nondescript voice you've ever heard, with zero emotion, it goes, wait. Wait. So so by the end of our uh, visit to New York, we kept looking at each other and going, wait. But we had a very good time. The folks at Shiloh Baptist Church in Long Island, New York, treated us very, very well and Josiah Live broadcast over Facebook. So some of you got to see that. It's on the uh, Facebook GCA group now. I came home with audio, but I don't have time to get all the audio up on the site yet because I leave tomorrow for Chattanooga. And then I'll be there all week. So maybe the week after, I'll have time to start catching up with all the audio. Thank you to Tom for covering Wednesday night. His audio will go up on the website today. Thank you to Micah, who's going to cover this coming Wednesday. And then the month of August, I should be home and uh, passed out. So that's my plan. But still haven't missed too many Sundays. I'm glad for that. Turn to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. Paul is continuing to defend his apostleship. And he is continuing to defend himself against his naysayers and against these super apostles who claimed that they were better than Paul, that Paul was weak, that Paul was not very good looking, that Paul was not a great orator. And apparently they thought that they were. But Paul accuses them of comparing themselves to themselves. And he continues to defend that because the Corinthians have received the gifts of the Spirit and have received faith in Christ through his preaching, that these super apostles don't have anything comparable, even if God chose somebody who was weak in appearance and not a great orator. It was still up to God who he was going to send his message through. He used Paul to go all the way to Corinth, the furthest distance that Paul went in his missionary journeys, and so Paul continues to argue, I got all the way to you, and you should have supported me enough to go beyond you, but once I got to you, I decided to be no burden to you. Because the false apostles were accusing Paul of all sorts of things. In fact, you're going to see today that Paul is going to become even more sarcastic and a bit ironic because he just cannot believe that the Corinthians would receive all these evidences of his apostleship and receive all these evidences of the power of God through him and yet would prefer false apostles who he said, take advantage of you. They're ripping you off. They're slapping you in the face. He describes them in terrible, violent terms. And yet he says, and you receive them beautifully. But when I come and I expect you to react to the gospel you've already received, I can't get anything from you. So we're going to start at verse 9. Even though we ended at verse 9 last week, verse 9 contains the word, therefore, and you know the rule. Whenever you see a therefore, you have to go figure out what it's there for. Because he's just said that he three times entreated the Lord that this messenger of Satan, this thorn in his flesh, would be removed from him. And three times God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, so he's taking into account what God has said, my power is perfected, made complete in weakness, And that's the reason that God has made Paul weak. That's the reason that God has sovereignly ordained that Paul would have this thorn in the flesh. Whatever it was, it was bad enough that three separate times he went back to God and said, please remove this. You would think after the first time that he went to God and said, remove it, and God said no, that that would have been sufficient. But it was apparently so agonizing to Paul that he went back three separate times asking that God would remove it. Now, this is Paul again, who on the Isle of Malta did wonderful miracles, healed whole groups of people, and yet Paul simply couldn't seem to heal himself. Proof yet again that God is completely sovereign over whatever the events are in your life, even if God uses you to do great things. He is still capable of humbling you. He is still capable of keeping you in your place and making sure that if you're going to boast, as Paul says, I'll boast in my weaknesses so that God gets all the glory. Whatever good things Paul had, whatever visions, whatever revelations, whatever carrying of the gospel was dispensed to him, nevertheless, he realized that it's not about him. And it was... God's determination to make sure that Paul never thought it was about him. And he's going to bring that up yet again. Now, to my way of thinking, perhaps the most elusive of all human qualities is contentment. I used to, when I would meet people, and they would say, how are you? My answer was always, pretty reasonable, That's what I would say to folks. How you doing? Uh, Pretty reasonable. And then one day I said that to a fellow, and he said, I am so glad to meet a reasonable man. (laughs) So I realized I couldn't keep saying that. I was saying something about myself I didn't mean to be saying. Contentment is really, really difficult to achieve how many of you would say you've reached the point in your life where you're actually genuinely content? See, it's so difficult because all the little things of life keep eating away at us. All the little details, whether it's the sickness or whether it's the bills or whether it's arguing with direct TV or whether it's just the little things that you have to do. Was that too specific an example? (laughs) the things that we have to go through in our life constantly irritate us constantly keep us from being content now when we think of our own malcontentness we usually think of things like that these clothes don't fit oh I ate some cereal but it's stale oh this guy cut me off in traffic we had a lot of that this week (laughs) I even made a joke at the church in New York where I joked about a woman cutting us off for my example of being in context. And then I said, she cut us off because she's from New York. And everybody laughed. Even the New Yorkers know they drive terribly. Anyway, these are all the reasons that we get unhappy. Our life just isn't going well. Something's gone wrong. Something didn't go the way we meant for it to go all the little things of life that just irritate us, Paul is now going to list the kind of stuff that we typically would never put up with, never put up with insults. And yet Paul says, I'm content with that. Now, where could he get this kind of contentment? People cannot be content. And I keep arguing this and arguing this, and I think it holds true. No, I know it holds true. People simply cannot be content until they recognize that there is a sovereign God behind everything that occurs in their life. That's the only place you're going to find contentment. As long as you think that your life is up to you, up to your ego, up to your decisions, up to your pride, up to your self-made madness, As long as you think that about your life, you're never going to be content with your life. I have known plenty of very, very wealthy people in my life, fabulously wealthy, millionaire folks, and none of them, not one of them, not a single one of them was content because they were constantly afraid now that they were going to lose it, that somebody was going to take it from them. And they lived in this constant fear that they were going to make a mistake and lose all the things that they had. It turns out that the more you have, the more you can lose, and the less content you become. Because that's just human nature. There's no way to be truly, genuinely content until you recognize that whatever you have was given to you by God. Everything that enters your life enters through nail-scarred hands. And that sovereign, merciful, loving God is in charge of whatever you go through. And even if it's difficult, even if it's sickness, even if it's pain, you have to recognize that it is a sovereign God who brought it into your life and all things are working together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All of this stuff is ultimately going to result in your faith, in your confidence in him, and in your eternal salvation. Ultimately, it's all going to be worth it. And once you have that mindset, then you can say, all right, I'm at least going to try to be content with whatever happens in my life. While we were in New York this week, I got a call, somebody that I've known for a while now. In fact, we met at the church back in Franklin. So it's been a good while that I've known this couple. And uh, she called me to tell me that her husband had pancreatic cancer. It's in his liver. It's in his stomach. The doctors give him anywhere from two weeks to two months. And I haven't seen them in a decade. And she called and said, he's asking for you. And I said, I'm in New York right now. But I'll come see him while I'm home And he asked that I would come to his funeral. And I said, fine, I'll do the funeral. And yet, in the midst of all that, she talked about how good God is. How about that? Because you can't ever reach the point of genuine contentment until you understand that God is the one bringing these things into your life. If he's given you plenty to eat and plenty to wear, then say thank you and be happy. If he's restricting your movements, if he's giving you times of hunger and difficulty, say thank you and go through it. Because apparently he feels that you need to go through this for your good and for his glory. And the more you recognize the glory and the goodness of God, the easier it is for you to genuinely be content with whatever happens in your life. Here, let me show you Paul's example here. He says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me, and therefore I am well content with weaknesses. He knows how weak he is. He knows how beat up he is. After all the beatings and the stonings and the jailings and being left for dead and all the time in the deep and all the starvation and deprivation he's been through in his life, he's a genuinely weak fellow. And yet he says, I'm content with that. He says, I'm content with insults. Is there anybody in this room that can say they're content with their insults? That when people insult them, they're content. They're willing to let people insult them. That's not human nature. We're so quick to say, what are you talking about? What do you know about me? You don't know. We're so quick to defend ourselves. But Paul says, I'm content with the insults because I know that the insults are serving some bigger, grander purpose of God, and I know where the insults are coming from, and I don't even care In fact, I told you last week, one of the best comments I ever heard about insults was a fellow who said, when people insult me, I'm just happy that they don't know the rest of the story. They don't seem to know how bad I really am yet. So Paul says, I'm content with these insults. I'm content with distresses. That's the time that we go running to God. That's when we're distressed. That's when we're crying out to God. What happened here? I thought you loved me. How did I reach this point of distress? My child is so sick, or I can't make my bills, or I feel terrible, or or what a loss I've taken. I'm completely distressed. Paul says he can be content even in distresses even, he says, with persecutions. And he suffered persecution on a level that none of us ever have. I thank God that we're sitting in an air-conditioned, carpeted building talking about persecution. Yeah, we have very comfortable chairs we're all sitting in, and we're talking about persecution. We think we're being persecuted if somebody put onions we didn't order on our hamburger at McDonald's. We're like, persecution, I didn't ask for onions. Paul went through persecutions, went through stonings, went through beatings, went through jailings, went through hatred, hatred. Went through having to be let down through windows in walls just to avoid being captured yet again. He knew what it was to be genuinely persecuted for Christ's sake. And yet he could say, I'm content. I'm content with that. Because he knows it's all Part of the package with difficulties, and then notice the last phrase for Christ's sake. That's the key to it all. He says, I'm content with the insults, I'm content with the persecutions, I'm content with the hardships, as long as they're for Christ's sake. As long as I'm defending Christ, as long as I'm advancing the cause of Christ, as long as I'm promoting the gospel of Christ, when I'm insulted, when I'm persecuted, when I'm distressed, when I'm insulted, I I recognize that just goes with the gig. It's just part of what it is to preach Christ in a sin-soaked, God-hating world. So he says, I'm content with it. Because when I am weak, then am I strong. Keep your finger right there for a moment. Turn over to Philippians 4 for a moment. Just a couple books forward. Because this isn't the only place that Paul talks about the contentment that he has found even in the midst of all kinds of trials and difficulties. In Philippians 4, we're going to start at verse 10. You know that the Philippian letter is often referred to as the joy letter. The inspiration behind this letter is that Paul is in jail, and yet the Philippians have sent time and time again to his necessity, to his need. Epaphroditus has arrived with a gift, and so he's writing to the Philippians, thanking them, starting at verse 10, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked the opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in, in whatever circumstance I am. Okay, so he said, I learned contentment. How did he learn it? He learned it through the things he endured. Like I just said, I've known fabulously wealthy people, and not a one of them was content. And I think the reason none of them were was because their lives were just too darn good. Everything was just going their way. You're never going to learn contentment, genuine contentment, while the bluebird of happiness is on your shoulder, and it's all rainbows and sunshine, and children are dancing around you spreading flower petals and singing kumbaya. That, you're not going to learn anything. You're never going to learn anything truly important when you're comfortable. But when affliction comes, when difficulty comes, when disappointment, when hardship comes into your life, that's when you learn to say to God, You're sovereign, your will be done. Your example is Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He understood how bad it was going to be. The very Lord of glory, the one who had always been at the right hand of God, was now going to turn himself over to creatures that he made and let them spit on him and beat him and pluck his beard out, put a crown of thorns on him, beat him across the back, bleed him out. He's going to allow them to do it. That's massive persecution. And he knew how bad it was going to be because he knew after the people got done with him, he was going to hang on a cross and the wrath of God was going to come on him. He knew how bad it was going to be. That's, that's why he would say, If it were up to me, let this cup pass. If it were up to me, let's not do this. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And that's the attitude that we have to take when we're going through difficulty and hardship. Those are the, as my father used to call them, those are the character building times. When things go rough, that's when you kind of buck up and find out what you're made of. When you're sitting on pillows, you're not learning anything at that point. But let you be uncomfortable. Let you be persecuted. Let you be insulted. And that's when you're going to find out what kind of person you really are and how much faith in God do you really have. Or are you going to scream at God because of what he's doing to you? Or are you going to learn contentment? Are you going to learn that sovereign God has brought this into your life for a purpose? Otherwise, you have to admit that purposeless things happen in God's universe, and then he's not sovereign. And if he is sovereign, then whatever comes your way is on purpose, and it's according to God's purpose. And he's sitting on his throne even now doing whatever seems good to him. Everything he's doing, he's doing on purpose. And he's bringing these things into your life for a purpose. And once you understand that this is not random, this is not chance, this is God's sovereign will and purpose being served out in your life, then you can rest in it. Then you can accept contentment that this is what God is doing. And let me add, just from a practical standpoint, you can go the rest of your life beating your head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty and never be content. But God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. And even if it makes you unhappy, even if it makes you stomp and scream and fume, even if it makes you frustrated constantly, He's still going to do it. You're still going to go through it. There were too many of you nodding at me at that moment because it's a reality. God is going to do what God's going to do. The best thing you can do is just get in line with it. Trust okay, your trust your father. Okay, Conrad Why, and Marilyn. Very early, huh? You said this little fellow back here trusts his father. That's right. He's content because he knows dad has it. Now, I was about to say Conrad and Marilyn, which made Marilyn very, very nervous, I'm sure. <laughs> but you know, Conrad and Marilyn have been married next year is 60, or two years? Next year. next year is 60 years, OK? Do you think by now Marilyn has a pretty good sense of what Conrad's like? Yep. Yeah. At some point, she just kind of has to go, That's how he is. (laughs) Right? Okay, same thing with God. The longer you walk with God, the longer you learn about God, the better. You can say, well, God's going to do this. He's going to take me through it because that's how he is. And I'm going to go through this hardship no matter what. I'm going to go through this difficulty no matter what. And when you're looking for comfort in the middle of your pain, the only place to find comfort is in him because that's also how he is. There is no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape so that you will be able to bear it. In other words, you're going to go through difficulty, but God's also going to provide the way through the difficulty so that you can bear up under the difficulty. Why? Because that's what God's like. And the more you come to grips with, that's what God's like. The more you're able to rest in whatever it is he brings your way. So let's talk about Paul's contentment here out of the Philippian letter, starting at verse 12. He says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. I think the King James says... I know how to suffer lack, and I know how to abound. Because, as I just said, I have seen as many people destroyed by wealth as I have ever seen destroyed by poverty. Actually, I think it's not even. I think I've seen more people destroyed by wealth than I've seen people destroyed by poverty. Because people in poverty know to cry to God usually. They're looking for some help. Self-made men, self-sufficient people, they're not looking for God. They're not looking for help. They're the ones Jesus talked about who said, my barns are full. I'm doing fine. Eat, drink, be merry. And he says, "Uh, you fool. Your soul is going to be required of you. And what is a man going to give in exchange for his soul? So the point is, Paul knows both how to suffer lack and be content And he knows how to be fine and have abundance and be content. That's the trick. Not letting the circumstances of your life take away from your ability to recognize God's sovereignty, your weakness, your lack of ability in and of yourself, and to be content in whatever God is doing in your life if he's made you comfortable and you have plenty to eat and you have plenty to wear and you drive a nice car and you live in a nice house, great. Don't let that ruin you. If God has made it difficult for you, you wake up every day wondering where your next meal is coming from. You only wear one shirt every day because that's all you own and it looks something like that one. (laughs) And if that's what God does for you, Learn to be content, because the same God who knows how to provide is the God who is caring for you on a day-to-day basis and will provide something to eat, will provide something to wear. That's the promise from God. Food and raiment, food and raiment. But we get so used to having lots of food and refrigerators full of food and fast food places to eat. We have so much food that we don't even think anymore about the fact that it's God who's providing us something to eat daily. We have closets full of clothes, boxes full of clothes, and yet we uh, stand in our closets going, I have nothing to wear. <laughs> you knew that before I said it. That was stunning. How did you know that? Sit <laughs> I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and the secret of going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Here's the secret he learned. Here's where his contentment comes from regardless of how much he has, whether he has plenty or whether he has lack. He can be content because he's learned this. And it's an important lesson that we all need to learn. It's this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things. Now, of course, within modern pop Christianity, that's a T-shirt slogan. That's a bumper sticker slogan. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And they think what that means is I can burst into my boss's office and I'm going to get a promotion because I can do all things through Christ. I can roller skate with the best of them because I can do all things through, you know. It's not what it means. Look at it in context. Paul says, I know how to abound and I know how to suffer lack How did I learn to go hungry and be full? What is the secret to getting along no matter what my circumstances? The secret is... I have learned to be content because I know that it's all coming to me through nail-scarred hands. It's all coming to me according to what Christ has decided for me, so I can do all these things, the suffering and the abounding. I can do all those things through Christ who gives me strength, even in the abounding, even in the suffering. He gets me through it because I'm weak. I'm incapable, I don't have the ability to bear up under this, but Christ does. Therefore, Paul can continue to boast, when I'm weak, then is Christ strong? And that's the way that he can do all things through him that strengthens him. That's the context, that's the point, and that's where Paul's contentment comes from. Turn back to 2 Corinthians. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. Why? What's the therefore? Two reasons. God's grace is sufficient. And when I'm weak, then Christ is strong. That's how he gets through it. No matter what it is, no matter what comes into his life. The grace of God and the strength of Christ is how he endures it. How did he reach that point? He learned it through suffering. He learned it through difficulty. He learned it by having to endure the things that God had him endure so he could learn the lesson of complete dependence on God. Now, you would think smart people... Because we're a bunch of smart people, right? All of us. We're just smart people. Amen. You amen too quickly. (laughs) We're we're just a room full of smart cookies, aren't we? Good-looking, well-dressed, smart human beings. That's us. You would think that smart people would figure out that God wants us to rest entirely on him and that we need to have no confidence in ourselves or in our flesh. And you would think that we would figure that out so that we don't have to be continually taught it. We don't. But we don't. But we don't. We're so smart that we become self-sufficient. And that's the way that we end up thinking that we're going to handle this. How often have you heard anybody, especially men, because we're really going, we're men, we're guys, we do this. Guys have a tendency to go, I got this. Yeah, right, right? Yeah, I got this. Well, the simple reality is we don't got this. We don't got it. God's got it. Because the Bible says we can make all kinds of plans. Men make all kinds of plans in their hearts and their minds. But the plan of the Lord, the will of the Lord, the intention of the Lord, the providence of the Lord. The sovereign providence of the Lord is what's going to happen, regardless of what you think. I've made this comment so many times, but every really terrible thing that ever happened in my life, I didn't see coming. I didn't see it coming. It just broadsided me. Every really great and wonderful thing that ever happened in my life happened despite me. I didn't do it. I didn't make it happen. It just happened. It was just wonderful. Wow, what a surprise. This is great. Okay, well, then, if I got broadsided by the bad stuff and I'm surprised by the good stuff, what's instantly clear is I'm not in charge. I'm not the one running this show. God is the one running this show, and I have to learn to accept at his hand whatever he brings in to my life. You find that all the way back in the book of Job, arguably the oldest book in the Bible. Job says we accept good at his hand. Shouldn't we accept trouble at his hand? I mean, it's it's that early that God reveals himself as being the God who is in charge of the good things and the difficulty and the troubles of our life. And if you belong to him, and if he loves you, then every one of these things he brings into your life is on purpose for your good and his glory. Or you have to say he doesn't know what he's doing. There's randomness. God's capricious. But the reality is a sovereign and loving God only does those things that are for our good and his glory. So whatever you're staring at today, whatever you're looking at today, whatever your circumstances today, I hope in the midst of it you can find contentment. Contentment's elusive. It's difficult. But Paul said, I learned it through the things I endured. And the outcome of it is he has far less confidence in himself, and all his confidence is in Christ. And God's going to teach you that lesson the hard way or the easy way. Smart people would take the easy way. None of you will. (laughs) Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now Paul's going to say, look, I've become foolish. He, he says repeatedly that his boasting is foolishness. So he says, I've become foolish, but you yourselves compelled me. Because of the way you Corinthians are acting, because of the way that you are following the super apostles, because of the way that you've accepted the things that they have said about me, I am compelled now to defend myself. Actually, I should have been commended by you I mean think of everything he did for them think of how far he came think of the hardships he went through and on top of that was no burden to them I should have been commended by you for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles I told you a couple weeks ago in the Greek that's where we get this phrase I keep using super apostles the word hupeleon it's it's the word above way way above and so he says I'm not in any way inferior to the most eminent of the apostles even though I am nobody even though I myself in and of myself in my flesh I'm nothing special he's agreeing with them they say You know, he doesn't look good. He doesn't speak well. He doesn't seem strong. His appearance is very weak. He agrees. I'm nothing. But I've got Christ. And Christ working through me is a strength you don't want to deal with. In fact, by the time he gets to chapter 13, he starts threatening, you know, I will come and lower the boom. In fact, he says, I'm not going to spare anybody when I get there. But here he's admitting, I'm nothing, and even in my nothingness, I'm not a whit behind the super apostles. And yet you prefer them in all their chicanery, in all the ways they're robbing you, in all the ways that they're beating you and taking advantage of you. Them you prefer, and then you believe them when they say that apparently I don't have the kind of authority they have. The signs of a true apostle were performed. They were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So here's Paul again arguing for his spiritual superiority over the super apostles. He's saying you yourselves have seen. You've seen the miracles. You've seen the wonders. You've spoken in tongues. You've seen the healings. You've seen the things that are evidence of the spirit of God. Only the spirit of God can do these things. And you've seen evidence of the spirit of God working through me. What do they got? All they've got are these words, these insults, these persecutions, this taking advantage of you. That's all they've got. But the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches? What Paul is saying is I've planted several churches and since you're not happy with me now, tell me in what way I've treated you as any less than the other churches. Tell me in what way you are inferior to the other churches. You've had signs, you've had wonders, you've had the power of God, you've had the apostle in your midst, you've had all of the advantages, you've heard the true gospel, in what way are you in one whit inferior To all the other churches. Except in this one thing. Except that I myself did not become a burden to you. I was a burden to all the other churches. All the other churches supported me. All the other churches is why I don't have to take anything from you. Because I robbed other churches. Paul's language. So that I could bring the gospel to you freely. That's the one place that I can say you fell behind the other churches. The one place is, I was no burden to you. How can you be unhappy with that? And then Paul says, forgive me this wrong. It's the only place in all of Paul's writing you're going to find him saying, I was wrong. It's the only place. Now, I'm willing to admit that Paul may have been ironical at that point. He may have been saying, how did you fall behind the other churches except that I was no burden to you, which is actually a good thing? And he said, oh, oh, hey, forgive me this wrong. That may be the way that he is writing it. But he may also be saying sincerely, I should have been a burden to you. Have you ever heard the phrase uh, skin in the game? Mm -hmm. I heard it a lot in the company I used to work for. A couple decades ago, they used to say that their salespeople needed skin in the game. What they meant by that is you, you need to be participant in some tangible way. You have to have skin in the game in order to really value the job that you have or the job that you're required to do. Here, I'll put it this way. My son, when he was young, I used to buy him things. And usually, within a matter of months, all the parents in the room are going to agree with this, within a matter of months, those things were neglected or broken or in the trash. Right? Lucas is way too young for you to have agreed that quickly. (laughs) (laughs) And when my son got older and had to start doing some chores for some allowance, and he'd come to me and say, Dad, I need this. I want this. I'd say, you have your money. And then he had to figure out whether he really wanted it that bad. We were shopping one time, and he pointed at something in a store window, and and he said, I need this. And I said, no, no, you you want this. What you need is the $50 to buy that. (laughs) But you, you don't need that. You want that. When I said, if you've got $50, you can buy it. Suddenly, he didn't need it so bad. But I have discovered that now that he has his own money and his own income and buys his own things, he takes care of them. Why? He's got skin in the game. Yeah, he cares about it. Okay, I think that's what Paul is getting at. I was no burden to you, and because I was no burden to you, you can afford to just... Treat me like a a second thought. Treat me like something superfluous because you don't really have a commitment, an investment in me. What did you say? You haven't lost anything. You haven't lost anything. And so it's easier for you to neglect it. And so I do think Paul was either being ironic or being genuine when he said, forgive me this wrong. I should have been a burden to you. Here for this third time, verse 14, here for this third time, I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you for I do not seek what is yours, but I seek you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but the parents for their children. That just seems obvious, doesn't it? Lucas doesn't have a bank account yet, I'm guessing doesn't have a job yet, no income. And so it's obviously the parent's job to save up to take care of the child, not the child's job to take care of the parent. Paul utilizes that to say, you're my children in the faith. That's why I take care of you. And I'm ready to do it again. I'm ready to come to you this third time and still not be a burden to you. Verse 15, and I will most gladly spend and Be spent for your souls. I will most gladly spend and be expended for you. And if I love you the more, am I to be loved the less? I don't even think he's being sarcastic or ironical at that point. I think he's just pouring out his heart. I think he's saying, Look at everything I've done, how far I've come, what I've gone through, the pains that I've endured. The thorn in the flesh, the beatings, the jailings, and yet I come to you and I'm not a burden to you, and I do all of that because I love you. And because I do all that out of love, what do I end up with? Am I going to be loved less? You should at least match my love, you should at least care about me. But he says, I'm, I'm ready to come back. A- third time and not be a burden an expression of his extreme love for these people and his expectation that he would be loved in return but be that as it may verse 16 be that as it may I did not burden you myself now this next phrase I've read several commentaries I don't think anybody's quite captured it, at least what I read. I think Paul is genuinely being a tad sarcastic here because when you read the verse after it, you can see the flow of his argument. He says, but being the crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. In other words, apparently the super apostles were saying, You know, you got to be careful with that Paul guy. He's just in it for your money. He's just in it to kind of win you over to his side. He's just trying to get followers. He's trying to build a thing for himself. And he says, I didn't even take anything from you. So, So are you going to say what? That I'm a crafty fellow who took you in by deceit, and then once I had you, I didn't take advantage of you at all? In fact, he's going to list it in the next verse. You'll see what I'm getting at. Verse 17, certainly I have not taken advantage of you. Through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? In other words, not only I, but even the men I sent to you were no burden. So in what way exactly am I supposedly taking you by deceit? Where is this accusation of deceit coming from? Since I've taken no advantage of you. In fact, I've taken nothing from you. And yet you would accuse me of being deceitful? Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent a brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit? me and Titus, and the brother? Didn't we all walk in the same steps? Nobody took advantage of you. Nobody took anything from you. And then I think Paul sort of has an epiphany. How many of you know the movie Hook? Have you ever seen the movie Hook? I almost said he had an apostrophe, and I realized nobody would get that. Oh, you all laughed. You would have gotten it. Then I think Paul at that point was getting so frustrated with himself, acting foolish, defending himself, having to do this to counter the super apostles. You're not a wit behind any of the churches. I'm not a wit behind any of the other apostles. And yet I'm being accused of deceit. And he says, all this time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. But actually, it is in the sight of God that we are speaking in Christ and doing it all for your upbuilding, beloved. He refers to them as beloved. A minute ago, he sounded like he was going to whip them upside the head. And now he refers to them as beloved, beloved of God, beloved of Christ. And so he says, I know what you think. You think I'm defending myself, but really... What I'm doing here is all in the sight of God. Everything I'm writing, everything I'm saying, what's happening, God knows all this. And we have been speaking really to you in Christ because this is all for your good. This is for your edification. This is for your upbuilding, beloved, so that you will recognize the gift of God that has been given to you. You've heard the gospel. You've heard the real gospel, not a hetero gospel. You've had the spirit of God, the real spirit of God. You've seen the miracles. You've seen the outpouring of God. You've been remarkably, remarkably blessed in the hearing, in the living, in having God among you. So God is even in this as I'm purportedly defending myself to you. But it's not ultimately just me defending me. It's God. It's in Christ. It's for your upbuilding because you are beloved. That, by the way, shows me that people within the church can still be beloved people within the church and be corrected. They can still go through reproof. They sometimes need to be realigned, sort of like. David writes in the Psalms, blessed men go through valleys of weeping. I mean, the fact that they've gone through the valley of weeping doesn't change that they're blessed men. People within the church, the beloved within the church, the saints, the elect within the church sometimes need to be upbraided, sometimes need to be corrected. Paul withstood Peter to his face. When Peter came to Galatia, was eating with the Gentiles. Some come from Jerusalem, from James. Peter dissembles, acts like he was never eating with the Gentiles. What? No, not me, no. Paul says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. So sometimes beloved people need to be corrected in the word. And that's what Paul is doing. He's correcting the church not because he hates them, not because they're lost or enemies of God. The correction that he's bringing to them is in God, is in Christ for their ultimate good because they are beloved. Or let's put it this way. Love and hate are not opposites. You know that, right? Love and hate are not opposite. They're both extreme emotions. They're both opposite of indifference. If you're indifferent, you don't love, you don't hate. That's the opposite of either of those strong emotions. So Paul is saying, the fact that I'm acting like this, the fact that I'm doing or have to do this boasting, the fact that you've compelled me to do this, And the fact that I'm willing to do it at my own expense, at my own cost, at the cost of my own body, at the cost of my own weakness and everything that I've endured, the fact that I do all this isn't because I'm indifferent to you. The fact that I do all this demonstrates how much I love you because you are beloved by God. And so, because you are loved by God, it is necessary for you to be corrected in the word. And I'm willing to do that. Again, in verse 13, he's going to say, Now shape up, because I'm not going to spare if I come and find you like this. So, this letter is kind of a warning. All this time, you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you, but actually, it is in the sight of God that we are speaking in Christ. And all of it for your upbuilding, beloved. For I am afraid, this is why he's doing it, this is why he's being so hard on them. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish. And I may be found by you to be not what you wish. And perhaps there will be strife and jealousy and angry tempers and disputes and slanders and gossip and arrogance and disturbances. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity and immorality and sensuality which they have practiced. So now Paul says, I'm afraid. I hear these stories about you. And I don't want to come and have God humiliate me before you. I planted you. I brought you the gospel. This is a church of my working. And I'm afraid that if I come and you haven't changed, you haven't given up your sensuality and immorality, you haven't repented of the sins of your past, that God may bring me there just so that I can be humiliated by how poorly you're doing. And when that happens, I'm not going to be what you're hoping, and you're not going to be what I'm hoping. And if that's the case, I'm not sparing anybody. Now, these things that he listed, I just want to look at these lastly this morning, because nothing will rip up a church faster than these things. Look at the things he listed. Strife. What is strife? Arguing among each other. Not being willing to do what Paul writes in the Philippian letter. Not being willing to take the low seat. Not treating every man as better than yourself. Not looking on the things of others rather than your own things. That's going to cause strife and anger and contention. And that will rip a church apart. Or jealousy. How many different ways does jealousy have to be demonstrated in a church before it rips the church apart? I mean, jealousy, you start looking at people and you start thinking, I wish I had what they have. I wish I was more like them. God has cheated me. I didn't get what that person got. You start doing horizontal comparisons instead of keeping your thoughts vertical toward God and recognizing that sovereign God has given you whatever it is you have. Instead of going to God to say what your needs are, you start looking at other people and thinking, they've got more than me. They've got better than me. They've got great kids, and I got stuck with this little troll. And... (laughs) Okay, I was just seeing if you were still listening. I was just seeing if you were with me. Happy birthday, Kalon. And it was a joke. It was completely a joke. I know. <laughs> Angry tempers. I'm willing to confess this about me. Testosterone is tough. And from the time I was about 17 till I was about 20. 20- 29 man did I have a temper oh my goodness you you did not want to come sideways on me oh man fearsome temper God drove that out of me as a process of teaching me how to be content and how to rest in him uh, eventually I found that my temper was fruitless because it didn't hurt the other person as much as it hurt me But tempers will destroy a church. Start getting angry at each other. I don't trust you. I don't believe you. How dare you? I'm getting my own. I don't care if I have to go through you. Temper will destroy a church. Disputes, that's very much like strife. Arguments among each other. Slanders. (sighs) I've been in so many churches in my life where people would come up to me almost as if they were just going to tell me a little story. And then at some point it would become, well, you do know about her, right? What, what What? about her? And then slander, 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 slander. And I'd say, do you know this for a fact? And they'd say, well, that's what I heard. Okay, now it's gossip. And gossip will wreck a church slander will wreck a church when we talk about each other we need to be able to speak of each other in love and in compassion and recognize that you're as faulty as they are whoever you're talking about whoever you're pointing at you are every bit as guilty and probably guiltier of other things There's nobody in this room who wants their whole life to be projected on a big screen behind me so we can all see what you're really like. Nobody wants that. We're just little balls of insecurity running around on this planet trying to look better to other people. And the way too many people accomplish that, or at least attempt to accomplish that, is by tearing other people down to make themselves look good. It's the only reason Jerry Springer was ever on TV. So that people could sit at home and go, well, at least I'm not them. Because we love to gossip. We love to slander. We love to hear something about somebody else. And then we can't wait to get on the phone and tell somebody else. And that will ruin a church. And finally, arrogance What is arrogance? It's the most frequent sin repeated in the Bible. Lack of humility. Ego. Pride. Me first. Me first doesn't work in a church. It never works. works. Me first only makes other people feel bad as you go through your life running over people. And finally, disturbances which are just upsets. There are some people who just love to stir the pot. There are some people who just love when there are problems, disturbances within a body. They love to just keep it stirred up because they thrive on the chaos. And Paul says, I don't want to come to Corinth and find out that that's the kind of stuff that's going on in your church. Now, I can say quite proudly... That when I was in New York this week, when I was asked how the church was doing, how the congregation of GCA was doing, I'm just so very proud of you all. I'm just so happy that I get to say, you know what? We're good. We're we're healthy. I wish I could bottle up the way we are right now and hold it for a time when we need it. Because I know there's coming a time when we're going to need it. Over the course of 16 years, I've learned that there are peaks and valleys in the life of a church. But right now, we're healthy. Right now, we're good. Right now, people are taking care of each other. Right now, people are looking after each other and loving each other. And it took us a very long time to get here. So I'm asking you, I'm begging you, everybody in the room, everybody individually, everybody, from Aiden all the way up to Gladys. I'm asking you, don't wreck our church. It's a really good church. Make sure you feed our church. Make sure you take care of our church. Treat it like something you've got an investment in. Because as I travel around, as I see things, you know, I'm a church guy. I watch. I look. And it's hard to find a good, healthy church. And if you're part of one... Thank God. And if you're part of GCA, you're part of one. So be happy. Be thankful. Be glad for God's good providence that brought you here. And protect the thing you love. Protect what's good for all of us. And what's good for all of us is all of us. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Does that make sense? Yes. Am I alone up here? No. Technically, technically, I am. I am alone up here. I am. I'm alone up here. Are there any questions about that? You see how practical Paul is being at this point? He's on his way to Corinth. He just wants to make sure that when he gets there, he finds them living according to the gospel he has left them and not according to the another gospel, the alternate gospel that's been brought in by the super apostles who are trying to destroy the church that Paul has invested so much in. He loves this church. He wants this church to live and thrive in Christ. And he's afraid that it may not be the case when he gets there. Next week, we're going to close the book of 2 Corinthians. And then, as I said, I believe, since we're narrowing down the books of the New Testament that we've ever taught through, I think the next book we're going to look at is the book of James after proving that nobody's really smart in this room, I'm going to prove that we're grown up enough that we can do this because I think the book of James can be, can be very, very edifying and can also be a stumbling block if it's not handled right. But I think we can do it. So that's our plan for the future. Questions again. What do you got? Yes, sir. I think you may have explained this while, while I was out for a few weeks, but who exactly does Paul refer to by the super-apostles, because it's said very sarcastically. I assume he doesn't mean the apostles that actually knew Jesus as opposed to himself. Right. And in fact, he, he refers to them as Jews. We know that they're Jews. And in some ways, they seem to be kind of like the Judaizers who came into Galatia, because Paul would plant churches, talk about the excessive freedom we have in Christ, the finished work of Christ, And then they would come in behind him and say, Yeah, but you also need circumcision. But you, in Galatia, that was the case. But you also need to give to us, to build us up. You also need to tithe. You also need rules, 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 rules. You got to do these other things, which is why Paul would call it a heterogospel, that it's not the real thing, it's not the genuine article. So he even says that they're preaching another Christ. And so that's all we know about them, but I think they're very in league with the Judaizers. And everywhere Paul goes, and in fact to this day, everywhere that the real gospel is preached, everywhere that people preach the genuine freedom we have in Christ, everywhere that we preach that the finished work of Christ is sufficient to save you forever, there's always going to be somebody who comes along and says, well, yeah, but you also got to have this. And as soon as you say that, you've changed the gospel. And it was true then, and I think it's true now. Yeah. Anything else? Really? That's it? We're good? Okay. Everybody say hi to Curtis. Curtis walked through the door this morning and said, I think I've heard Jim's voice more than anyone else on the planet. So I apologized to him immediately. (laughs) And uh, he's a listener who was just traveling and realized he could make it to Smyrna. And I'm very happy to meet him because I said, have we ever communicated? Have you ever written to me? He said, no. (laughs) So he's heard me more than anybody else. (laughs) And never communicated with me. What took you so long? Well, we're glad you're here. I hope everybody treats you good this morning. And if they don't, let me know, and Michael will take them outside and beat them around the head and chest. Be here Wednesday night. Support Micah. All right, this is your big chance, Curtis. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.